Looking for a break from the never-ending news cycle? Searching for fresh, new content that makes you stop and say, that's how they did that? Then look no further than Teamistry, the new original podcast from Atlassian. Hosted by filmmaker and documentarian Gabriella Cowperthwaite, Teamistry looks past the front-page headlines and into the untold stories of teams behind some of history's most groundbreaking moments. Download Teamistry for free at Atlassian.com slash Teamistry or wherever you listen to podcasts. Interested in healthcare? Well, here's a programme you might not want to miss. Hosted by longtime healthcare reporter Dan Gorenstein, Tradeoffs takes a close look at the costly, complicated and counterintuitive world of the US healthcare system and the policies that govern it. Tradeoffs digs into the weeds with experts who understand the data driving the policy trends while telling compelling stories of those impacted by those policies. In the words of the Tradeoffs team, there are no easy solutions for a troubled healthcare system, just Tradeoffs. You can find Tradeoffs wherever you listen to your podcasts. I have you loud and clear. <laughs> Hello. 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 Welcome. Welcome. <laughs> <laughs> Science. And that is to say, physics, medicine, nature, or space, time, the brain, life, the universe. Hello, it's springtime here in the UK, and there are newborn lambs all over the fields, and we're seeing the sunshine again. Glorious. It's also been Mothering Sunday, and so we thought we'd talk about the science involved in having babies. Plus, the person who can smell Parkinson's disease and a way to halve how much water plants need. I'm Katie Haler. I'm Chris Smith. And this is The Naked Scientist. The Naked Scientist podcast is powered by ukfast.co.uk. Now, first this week, the brain sits cocooned behind a protective defence called the blood-brain barrier. It's there to protect the delicate neurochemistry of the nervous system and it bars the majority of chemicals, and critically drugs, from entering. Only very small molecules like caffeine, Chris's favourite molecule, can slip through. And this is a major frustration when it comes to developing treatments for diseases like Alzheimer's because it limits the repertoire of molecules that drug designers can work with. Unless, of course, you have a safe and selective way to temporarily open up the blood-brain barrier and allow the right things in, which is what James Choi and his colleagues have been trying to do. Drugs have been developed over the past several decades and they work quite well in mice and in animal disease models, but they can't get into the brain. What we're showing in this paper is a technology to get the drug into the brain. But there are lots of drugs that do get into the brain extremely well. Things like heroin, cocaine, nicotine, alcohol, they all do it. So (laughs) what's the exception then? So the exception is is that those drugs, um, the bad drugs, are very, very small. And so if you get a molecule small enough and put it into the bloodstream, it'll get into your brain and everywhere else in your body. A lot of the drugs that are useful are bigger. And so there's actually what we call a cutoff where we think with certainty that these drugs will not go across. And that includes antibodies, peptides. And your challenge is to find a way to ease them into the brain and surmount this problem where at the moment they would struggle to get in. Exactly. What we want to do is um, use a localized method to say, hey, in this region, such as your memory center, which affects Alzheimer's disease, we want the drug only to go there. The way we do that, we inject tiny preformed microbubbles. They're around the size of a red blood cell. And what we do is we apply a localized beam of sound onto the memory center, and the bubbles will then push the drugs from the blood into the brain. But this is not new, though, is it? The idea of using injectable bubbles and then combining them with sound and directing that to the brain helps to dismantle this thing we refer to as the blood-brain barrier, which which keeps the blood space and the brain space separate. It does cause that to temporarily become permeable so drugs can go into the central nervous system. That's been done, and that's been done oh. quite a while ago. So are you doing it slightly differently then? Yes. The current state-of-the-art is to inject the microbubbles and ping the bubbles with a very long pulse of ultrasound. And although they've done a lot of work to optimize it, the conclusion in the end is that the beam itself has some side effects. And there's a list of issues. Two of the issues that we try to address is the distribution of the drugs. 
within that beam, the drugs accumulate in one area at a high concentration, but it doesn't get to another area. So it's a very uneven distribution. The second concern with long pulses is that it disrupts the blood-brain barrier for several hours. And what that means is the blood-brain barrier can no longer do its original role, which is to regulate what goes into the brain and what goes out. And so you allow a lot of the unwanted compounds into the brain. A bit like jamming open the portcullis on the castle for for longer than you'd like. So the, the good soldiers go in, but then some other people sneak in behind them while the gates are still open. Exactly. And so we want to make sure that we're disrupting the blood-brain barrier, but do it in a very short time duration. And so what we showed in this paper is that using short pulses of ultrasound in a very fast sequence, we can get the blood-brain barrier open and then close within 10 minutes. And this works the same way, does it? You're using the sound to shake the bubbles. The bubbles shake the blood vessels effectively and open up a temporary sort of permeability in this blood-brain barrier so that the bigger things that would normally be excluded can, for a short while, sneak in. Yes, and the key thing here is to shake these bubbles gently. And when you do this, how much can you enhance the delivery of a drug that would not previously stand any chance of getting into the central nervous system? How, How much more gets in if you do this? A lot more. One of the model drugs that we tested does not go through the blood-brain barrier. But with our technique, it can then go in there. So as a measure of how much more, that's really hard to decide if if the original amount was very, very low. What we do know is that the level that we're delivering the drugs is at a similar dose to the long pulse sequences. And a lot of work with the long pulses have shown that the dose is enough to have a therapeutic response against a disease such as Alzheimer's disease and Parkinson's disease. So potentially a way to open up not just the blood-brain barrier, but new avenues in drug development for regenerative brain diseases too. James Troy there, he's at Imperial College London, and that work was published in the journal Radiology. It's fascinating stuff. Now, scientists at the University of Cambridge believe they've come a step closer to revolutionising how computers work and also making them much more powerful and energy efficient. At the moment, chips work by pushing electrical charges through semiconductor materials like silicon to do calculations. But as we shrink the sizes of circuits to pack more onto a chip to increase the computing power, it gets much harder to push electricity through, and so more energy gets wasted. An alternative is to transfer information by using a property called the spin state of electrons. But the challenge has been to design a material that can allow this information to get transmitted and over a sufficient distance for it to be useful and without messing up the spin information. And this is what the Cambridge team think they've done using materials called organic semiconductors. And here to explain how this works is naked scientist Ben McAllister. So, Ben, first of all, what is this concept of spin and how is that used to do computing? It's a great question because it's something that is difficult to conceptualise. It's this quantum mechanical property, this sort of bizarre thing that certain subatomic particles have, like electrons, for example, which is what we're talking about here. They have this property known as spin, sort of like intrinsic momentum that they have, and it can take one of two states. It has to either be up or down. And the fact that it has to be up or down means that you might start thinking about ways to use it in computing, because anyone uh, who has heard of binary before, which is the language that computers speak and the language that they use to do their operations, relies on a series of ones and zeros. You essentially need two states to do any kind of computing based on binary. And when you have electrons that have this property that can either be up or down, you can make one of those one and one of them zero and then do computing that way. How do you register the spin on the electron? whether it's an up or down spin? It kind of depends on the context that you're working in. Uh, In this case, they're using something called the inverse spin hall effect, another quantum mechanical process, which basically means the spin creates a small voltage across some sensor that they can read out. And the, the problem has been you can impart this spin to an electron, but you can't send it anywhere over any meaningful distance in, in order to convey a message. And the Cambridge team is saying that's what they think they've surmounted. Yeah, so specifically they're talking about this class of materials called organic semiconductors. And semiconductors are really important materials in computing. They're what we typically use to do computing. Typically we use what are called inorganic semiconductors, so things like silicon, which is a chemical you find in sand, and uh, other things like that. 
If we wanted to use organic materials instead to make semiconductors, they're much cheaper and easier to produce. So there's been a lot of interest in doing that sort of in recent years. But yes, as you say, in these organic semiconductors that this team is working with, they found that transporting the spins to use for computing is really difficult. They basically don't travel far enough and they don't stick around for long enough. They kind of diffuse, they call it. And what's their solution? So what they found, if you pump these organic semiconductors, if you put a bunch of additional spins in there, it enters this strange regime where the spins start basically traveling a lot easier within the organic semiconductor. So they don't diffuse as quickly, they can travel longer distances, and they stick around longer inside the material as long as you provide this artificially increased spin density. Is that a bit like if I was at a loud party and I just turn the music up that I did want to listen to a bit louder. The people in the room next door playing something different, I drown them out. Is that is that it, or is there something else to it? Uh, I think it, it might be kind of similar in the sense that you're providing more of the things that you do want into the material, but it is really something quite strange and interesting going on in the material where if you provide enough spins, it seems that the way that they move around in the material actually sort of changes. It's like a new mechanism for it. So it would be like if you turned up your music Music, and when it reached a certain level, all of a sudden you also got some headphones and then you could hear it a lot better. Now, when we design computer chips at the moment, one of the constraints is that we have shrunk the components, the transistors, which are what are actually doing the logic, the mm-hmm. noughts and ones of binary, to such an extent now that they are not much bigger than just a few atoms across. And Sorry. that means that obviously the energy that it takes to push electricity through there is very high. Also, they're so closely packed now that they begin to interfere with each other if we go much smaller. So we've hit this this silicon wall where we can't shrink them any further. What does this mean? If, if we can pull off these new forms of, of semiconductors, these organic semiconductors, where does this take our computing? It really is a completely new regime because we would sort of not necessarily need to think about using traditional semiconductor-based transistors and making them smaller and smaller and smaller because you wouldn't be using those transistors to encode your information. That's what's going on at the moment. The transistors are either on or off, so that's how you read your ones and zeros, and so you can only have as many sort of ones or zeros as you can have these little transistors, which are a few atoms across. If you were to use spins in these organic semiconductors instead, they can be much, much, much smaller. So we could basically keep scaling up the number of ones and zeros and bits you can fit into your chip. So yeah, we really could get around this problem that we're having with miniaturization. What would the chip of tomorrow using this technology actually look like? Because I'm pretty comfortable with how a microchip at the moment works. It's got a leg or a pin and I can send some electricity in there and it finds its way through all these various circuits inside the chip. So are these new organic semiconductor chips going to be a completely different architecture? Well, the interesting thing is that those traditional semiconductors that you're talking about, the transistors that we use to do computing today, they're relying on transport of charge. So basically moving the electrons around inside them and then based on how much charge is moving around, how many electrons there are, calling that a one or a zero. This is reading something entirely different, which is the electron's quantum mechanical spin. So really the architecture, yeah, is going to be quite different. It's 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 quite a bit of a change of paradigm. And I believe there's still quite a lot of work that needs to be done. It's really like getting the these fundamental technologies sorted out, like chips that we can actually transport the spins around in that's going to allow us to figure out what the future looks like. And when people talk about quantum computing, Mm -hmm. is this it? So this is a good question. It's computing that relies on quantum mechanics to understand how it works. We're talking about quantum mechanical properties like the spin of electrons. But when people are typically talking about quantum computing, what they're really talking about is using a different thing, which is called a qubit or a quantum bit, which is a bit that is exists in like a superposition of being up and down at the same time. And then you can do all kinds of other interesting operations with there that, that work a lot faster. In this context, they're not talking about using them for quantum computing, even though they are quantum properties that are being read out. So no is the real answer, but it is kind of uh, on, on a blurry line there. Ben McAllister from The Naked Scientist, thank you very much. It was Niels Bohr who said, actually, that if you're not completely baffled by quantum mechanics, then you didn't understand it. I think I agree. Got a biological brain buster or a chemical query? Ask the Naked Scientists. I just wanted to know about sleep paralysis. Is it a disorder or condition and can it be cured? How much energy is in moonlight? And could solar panel technology be used to capture this energy? When you cook food with any alcohol, how much, if any, percentage of the alcohol stays behind? Every Friday, The Naked Scientist and Cape Talk unravel the science behind those weird and wonderful questions you've always wanted to ask. 
download and listen for free at thenakedscientist.com slash ask or simply search and subscribe to Ask the Naked Scientist on your favourite podcast app. Still to come, a way to halve the amount of water that crop plants need to grow and the new technique that can see a developing baby's heart in 3D before it's even born. Stay tuned. First though, it's not every day that you meet someone with an incredible sense of smell that means they can also detect diseases, including potentially Parkinson's disease, as Katie has been hearing. Ever heard the phrase, something doesn't smell right? Well, whilst smelling someone isn't a commonly accepted form of medical diagnosis, it turns out that some people are capable of actually smelling Parkinson's disease, a serious and progressive neurological condition which causes brain damage over many years. Physical symptoms include a characteristic tremor, muscle stiffness and slowness of movement. Retired nurse Joy Milne, whose husband had Parkinson's, is one of these super smellers. My husband was 31, 32, and I began to smell change in his basic male musk smell. became quite uh, different, it changed. I put it down to the fact he was a consultant anaesthetist in an enclosed environment, uh, sweating and that, and, and really he wasn't pleased about me going on about it. So I was quiet and we just put up with it. But now, University of Manchester scientist Perdita Barron and her colleagues have, using Joy's impressive nose, been able to identify a handful of biomarkers for Parkinson's disease, which currently has no conclusive diagnostic test. First off, Perdita told me how her and Joy met. Well, Joy found us, so she approached a a colleague of mine, Tilo Kunath, at the University of Edinburgh, who were, who's a basic scientist like me working on Parkinson's disease. And she told him that he should find out why people who have Parkinson's disease smell differently. I have to say, we didn't really believe her at first. We thought that perhaps, you know, perhaps it was just uh, an associated sense with the disorder movement of, of people with Parkinson's. But we thought we'd better prove it. And we thought we'd better divorce the smell from the person and the, and the motor symptoms. So devised a test which... Um, got people who had Parkinson's and people who didn't to wear T-shirts. And then um, the T-shirts were cut up and put into bags for Joy to smell way away from any patient. And, um, well, Joy, you can say she she was right. <laughs> yes, and uh, as a, a parting gesture, I said, you've cut them in half and I don't know which is which. Well, I put them back together again to the person and I did. Joy smelled 12 T-shirts. Six were worn by people with Parkinson's and six were controls. And she got them all correct. What's more, she identified one control subject as having Parkinson's. This was labelled as a false positive, but they actually got in touch later to say they'd received a diagnosis. So I asked Joy, what exactly does Parkinson's smell like? It is a quite a deep animal musk and it has a, a slight rancid smell in it when it's a little bit stronger. Lovely. So having controlled for variables like sex or diet that could be separating the T-shirt wearers and confirming that Joy really could smell Parkinson's, Perdita and the team took a closer look at where on the T-shirts these odours were actually coming from. So you might think it would be under the armpits, that's where we think people smell, but it wasn't. It was in the middle of the back, underneath the hairline. And that's a region of of our bodies where we excrete a lot of the oily substance called sebum. That's the place where when you're a teenager you get spots, face as well. So we then had to develop a test that could be applied to patients that would extract sebum from them and we would then weigh the volatile molecules from the sebum, that means the ones that go through the air. And, And so that's what we did. Once Joy's sense of smell told them which molecules to look for, the team were then able to put the sebum in a machine that essentially weighs different molecules, called a mass spectrometer, in order to identify what molecules are there and in what abundance. We've been able to pinpoint four compounds, which are three of them up-regulated, and one of them is actually down-regulated in people who have Parkinson's. And those molecules have been given back to Joy, and she smells them, and she smells the smell. So we now have four biomarkers that tell us whether someone has Parkinson's or not, just from swabbing their skin. The four markers in question are acosane, hippuric acid, 
octadecanal and pyrillic aldehyde. Quite a mouthful. But these compounds are normally found in sebum. But it's the quantities that could, the team hopes, mean these could form a diagnostic tool for Parkinson's disease. But could looking for the quantities of these compounds in sebum reveal anything about the severity of someone's condition? That's a really good question, and and I can't answer that now. There are definitely some patients who have a much stronger smell and much stronger signal than others. Definitely people at late stage Parkinson's, are, are the smell is stronger and the signal is stronger. And we've really focused on people who are called drug naive. That means they haven't yet been put on to medication for Parkinson's disease because we want to see how early we can diagnose. And actually those cohorts have, have a very strong smell as well. So we think we will be able to go even earlier and, and that's where our research is taking us now to see if we can diagnose people before the motor symptoms. We don't currently have a cure for Parkinson's disease, but if we can pick up on it earlier, the hope is that we might be able to make interventions to prevent the condition from spreading. But why should Parkinson's disease smell at all? We really don't know the answer to that. What we do know is that people who have Parkinson's do produce more sebum, and sebum is a nice oily environment which bacteria would certainly like to um, eat and colonise on. So it may well be that this is a signature based on the change in the um, microflora on on the skin of people with Parkinson's. But why that smells, I don't know. And now to Joy. What's it actually like to have this ability? can be a curse, but in this instance, it's a superb gift I've been given. And I feel that um, I really do have to um, use it because having lived with Parkinson's for so long, I think now is the time. We have the science, we have the research, and with those together, we could diagnose Parkinson's earlier and then look at the inflammatory process far before the motor symptoms come in and I think that's so important. Amazing stuff isn't it? Joy Milne and Perdita Barron there and Joy's now also training her keen nose on TB tuberculosis so watch this space. We'll have her on when she solves that one too. Now water is increasingly making headlines in many countries where year on year we're seeing declines in rainfall resulting in shortages. Cape Town in South Africa was on the verge recently of having to turn the taps off completely and in parts of Australia farmers are weathering some of the worst drought conditions that have ever been documented. And even where rainfall is still reliable, rising population and therefore water consumption mean that there may still be water shortages. One of the biggest consumers globally is agriculture. So a breakthrough by Mike Blatt at the University of Glasgow that's enabled him to halve plant water requirements could be a game changer. He's done it by adding a light sensing gene to the guard cells that open and close pores on the leaves. These are called stomata that the plant uses to absorb CO2 so it can grow. This modification means that plants can respond more rapidly to changes in light intensity, so they become much more water efficient. One of the biggest resource demands for plant growth is water. Every attempt people have made in the past to improve photosynthesis, carbon gain and biomass production of a plant results in increased demand of water simply because the plants rely on small pores in the leaf surface, so-called stomata, for both CO2 entry, CO2 being used by photosynthesis to make sugars. These pores also are unfortunately a pathway for water loss. A bit like you and me breathing, we breathe in oxygen to carry out respiration, but at the same time we have to breathe out, and when we breathe out we lose water. So by virtue of the fact that they have to get the CO2 into the leaf, and the inside of the leaf has a lot of water... By allowing the CO2 in, it's an inescapable consequence that water is going to leak out and be lost to the plant. And and therefore the plant has to maintain a constant supply of of water that it's basically throwing away to the atmosphere. In a sense, yes. Water loss in itself actually drives an engine of circulation within the plant. So it's not necessarily a bad thing, but it, it doesn't necessarily have to be as extravagant as it is in some plants. And that's particularly true of crops. So what have you done here that you think can improve on this process? What we've done is to show that it is possible to increase the water efficiency of the plant and also to increase the efficiency of carbon capture. 
by uh, introducing a new way for the guard cells that surround the stomatal pore to uh, gain and lose solutes, which is what drives their opening and closing. And by doing so, we've managed to accelerate the rate at which they move. And that acceleration better matches the variation in photosynthesis that the plants see over the course of the day as clouds move overhead or pass by. And that means that the plants are more efficient in their ability to prevent water loss when they don't need to carry out gas exchange. Now, when you say these guard cells, when we look at these pores on the undersides of leaves down a microscope, you can see these cells that are literally like the gatekeepers, which change their shape to allow the pore to open or close and therefore allow water out and carbon dioxide in when they're open. You're saying that you can manipulate how those cells do their job to make them do it much faster so that they're literally tethering, whether they're open or closed, much more rapidly to the ambient conditions. Precisely, exactly. But how have you done that? What have you actually done to the cells? We've introduced a synthetic iron channel. In this case, we've introduced a channel which we've created to connect the activity of the channel to light. So the channel becomes active when the light is on. It shuts down shortly after the light is switched off. So we're basically providing a new pathway for solute uptake and loss from the guard cells. And it's that movement of solute in and out of the guard cells that drives the accelerated stomatal movements. And how much of a difference does this make to the A, consumption of water, and B, the rate at which the plant actually grows? in terms of the increase in biomass that we see in the plants, is on the order of a factor of two. And likewise, the water use efficiency improved more or less on the same order, a bit less than a factor of two. Now, could you easily confer what you've done on your laboratory test plants on important plants that we grow to keep humans fed? Things like soy, things like maize, things like rice, wheat, other cereals and so on. In progress. We'll revisit this chapter in another couple of years. We're now looking to get the selection of very similar light-dependent controls into a number of crop species, including brassica and barley as a starting point. It would be very interesting to get into maize, which is obviously tremendously important uh, agriculturally, and also in rice. And assuming this does work in those other species... What could be the implications of this? If it actually works out, it means that we've, uh, in, in uh, crop species, it means that we may well have uh, a number of crops available to farmers in the course of the next decade or so that are substantially more efficient in their use of water, which means that the amount of water that uh, agricultural dema- agriculture demands uh, in the field goes significantly downwards. At the moment, agriculture consumes 70% of all freshwater resources on the planet. If we can reduce that by even uh, 20 or 30%, that will be a very significant impact on agriculture and on our water use globally. It certainly would. Mike Blatt there, and that work was published in the journal Science. Meanwhile, if you'd like to find out more about any of the stories we've been covering so far, the transcripts as well as references to the research papers are on our website, nakedscientist.com. The Naked Scientists podcast is produced in association with Spitfire, cost-effective voice, internet and IP engineering services for UK businesses. Find out how Spitfire can empower your company at spitfire.co.uk. It's just been Mothering Sunday, so to celebrate, we're taking a trip down the road of pregnancy and birth, stopping off along the way to chat with experts about some of the science involved in bringing babies into the world. Now, at various times throughout a pregnancy, women are going to be invited in for scans to check how the baby's developing, and these scans can tell us a lot. For instance, how big a baby is, when it was conceived, and what sex it is. But babies in the womb are tiny, with tiny organs. And there are some things we currently can't see very well with existing scans. This is an issue if babies encounter problems during pregnancy, which we can't pick up on before birth. But David Lloyd, who's at King's College London, has come up with a way of creating 3D models of the hearts of babies while they're still in the uterus. David, first of all, when we actually do image babies, how do we do it at the moment? 
So at the moment we use ultrasound, and uh, as we just heard, ultrasound is used in a variety of ways. The primary one that most people will experience in their pregnancy is the screening ultrasound, so the anomaly scan, which happens at around 20 weeks. Um, and there we're looking just to screen out major abnormalities in the baby. If we look at the heart, so if we suspect that there may be a problem with the heart, that patient will get referred on from the screening ultrasound to see a specialist, so like a fetal cardiologist. So you'll see a sonographer who's expert in scanning the heart with ultrasound and a doctor who works specifically looking at babies' hearts before and after birth. That's the sort of main way of doing that. And actually, ultrasound is still the same technique as we use for both of those scans. But there are some limits. And even when you have those very expert operators, when you're in that very specialist environment of fetal cardiologists, there are some things that we can't necessarily see as clearly as we'd like. It's a very good tool for most things. But when we get to things like the small vessels around the heart, that can be very difficult to define accurately. And when you look at all the other ways we have to image postnatally and compare that to before birth, it's much more limited. So things like CT scans that use radiation, we can't use. MRI, which is safe to use in pregnancy and has been used for things like, say, the brain, for example, is very limited when it comes to the heart because it's very small and it moves very quickly. So we've developed a technique to use those types of MRI scans using lots of images that we acquire of the heart and then cleverly reconstructing them after the fact to produce these very detailed 3D images. Cardiac abnormalities are one of the most common congenital things to go wrong, aren't they? Put simply then, you take a person who has, for some reason, been detected to possibly have some kind of abnormality in her developing baby's heart. You then put her in her pregnant state into your MRI scanner. Mm. And what, you just take loads and loads and loads of images, slices, effectively, through the pregnant uterus and then use a computer to recompile this. Exactly. So an MRI scanner works by essentially taking like a stack of photos through the baby from one side or the other side. We can choose where we want that to be. But each of those photos is just a two-dimensional image. So what we do is even though the baby's moving, if you looked at those stacks of images, that each image wouldn't relate to each other. So you can't actually go through that stack and make any sense of one image compared to the next image. So it's a little bit like someone's taken a load of pictures and then just thrown them all around the room. They're all a shuffled up deck of cards. But we still take all those pictures and we'll get the woman in the scanner and we can take sometimes hundreds of individual pictures, put them into a very clever piece of software that will look for the little bit we're interested in. And when it identifies that, it will try and work out where that belongs in a three-dimensional space and it will keep using all of the other pictures to support that sort of growing volume, as we call it, of the fetal chest and the fetal heart. And eventually we'll end up with something we can interpret in three dimensions. So this was more of a software problem writing clever enough computer software that can sift through enormous numbers of slightly different images because there's been movement and draw the common components back together so that you compile them to make that image. How good are the images? The images are excellent. So we can resolve down to less than a millimetre in terms of the resolution. And actually one of the advantages of this technique is because we've got so much data the data set that we end up with is actually higher resolution than any of the data we put in because it all overlaps with each other. Presumably a surgeon then, when this baby's born, we can predict what problems it's going to have on the basis of that very detailed scan. They could even rehearse in their mind what surgery they might carry out on that individual's anatomy in order to fix the problem before it's even been born. Exactly. And usually that kind of thing, really understanding to that level of detail what's happening with that baby's anatomy would have to wait until the baby was born for many conditions. So they can have a CT scan, then they can have an MRI scan once they've delivered, but not before. So all of that's on hold until the baby is actually here with us. What we can do now is bring that into the antenatal domain, sometimes two or even three months before the baby's there speak to the surgeons, they can counsel the family, we can plan for how that baby is going to be treated immediately after birth and ultimately improve the outcomes for those children. Sounds amazing, David. Thank you very much. That's David Lloyd. He's from King's College down in London. Now, many women have healthy, uncomplicated pregnancies, but this isn't the case for everyone. Around 7 or 8% develop a condition called preeclampsia. This can be potentially very serious and women who develop it will usually be monitored a bit more closely throughout their pregnancy. Catherine Aiken is an obstetrician and researcher at the University of Cambridge and she's here in the studio. Catherine, first off, what actually is preeclampsia and how would someone know that they had it? 
So preeclampsia is a complication of pregnancy that's characterised mainly by the mother's blood pressure going up and protein beginning to appear in her urine um, late on in the pregnancy. But it's not limited to that. Preeclampsia can affect all parts of the mother's organ systems. It can affect her kidneys, her liver, it can affect her brain, and it can also affect the growth of her developing baby at the same time. And so many women present with initial symptoms, for example, headaches, flashing lights in their vision, they might notice swelling. And one of the difficulties with preeclampsia is really the enormous range of things that different women experience when they actually develop the disease. And that's why we spend so much time monitoring the blood pressure of women in the third trimester. It's why we dip the urine during antenatal visits, because we know that this problem is common. We know if we pick it up, mums and babies will do a lot better, but it can mimic so many things. And that's why we spend so much time trying to identify who has actually got it and who's at risk. You mentioned the third trimester there. Is that when people tend to get it? It's when people tend to get it. We do see women who develop this very severe form of it earlier than that. But in most mums, we'll find it developing later on as the pregnancy progresses. How much do we know about why it happens in the first place? You mentioned some symptoms, but do we know what it's caused by? What we know is that it's not primarily a disease of the mother or of the baby, but it seems to arise from the placenta. And the placenta is one of those really fascinating organs and that seems to be the answer to quite a lot of those really major complications that we see in pregnancy. And it seems that preeclampsia arises from the very, very early growth of the placenta. And so Interestingly, this condition arises way, way before we see it, which is late in the pregnancy, at the time when the placenta is trying to plug in to the mum's circulation in order to feed the baby and support its growth. And it seems to be in that initial phase that actually the vessels don't develop properly and that's when preeclampsia has its beginning, although we don't see the effects until much, much later on. How can it be treated then or managed? What do you do with a lady who has it? Well, ultimately, the only thing that will end preeclampsia is delivering the placenta. That, of course, that means delivering the baby. So often we're in a situation where it's too early for the baby to be born. We don't want to give the baby the problems of prematurity. But we know that both mum and baby are at risk from preeclampsia. And then we've got a difficult balance. We've got a balance between can we continue with this pregnancy where the mum is at risk from these complications versus do we deliver a baby that then will face the problems of prematurity. And so a lot of our management is making these really tough judgment calls about when the right time to deliver is. And in the meantime, trying to control the symptoms in the mother, trying to control the high blood pressure and make sure that we keep her safe from all the things that women can experience during this complication. Now, I happen to be reading what's been published this week, Catherine. There's a very interesting paper I noticed with your name on it, actually. And (laughs) and, Because I was going to ask you about, we've talked very much about the mother's health here, but what about the unborn fetus if we don't treat or we don't manage preeclampsia properly? What are the consequences for the baby? Well, we know quite a lot about the immediate complications for the baby. We know that they're at risk of being born small and we know that they're at risk of being born early and both of those things carry a lot of risk with them. What we've been looking at is what happens later in life and that's the bit that we really don't have enough knowledge about at the moment, which is... Are those babies, if we get them through the initial phase, do they catch up? Do their development continue normally and so on? We've been looking at fertility in the female babies of women with preeclampsia. And what we find in our animal model is that they are actually got a lower egg reserve um, in their own adult life. And so their fertility may be impaired by this womb environment that they've, they've been developing in. So a baby born to a lady who's had preeclampsia will ultimately have fewer eggs in her ovary when she comes to have her own children. She may therefore suffer a a shorter reproductive life. Absolutely. That's what our work from the models that we've been looking at indicates. And and that's really fascinating to us because we know that preeclampsia has all of these problems that arise immediately, but we're only really beginning to see glimpses into the future of what it means in the longer term. Thank you very much. Catherine Aiken from the University of Cambridge.
on the way, does eating too many purple carrots turn you purple? And how does being born by caesarean section affect your future health? Now, of course, we couldn't do a programme all about having babies without hearing from someone who's just had one. So Katie went off down to the Rosie Maternity Hospital in Cambridge and her first port of call was midwife Alberto Rodriguez Cala. I am the matron for the delivery unit, the triage clinic, the high-risk recovery area and bereavement services. We are currently in the uh, triage clinic of the Rosie Maternity Hospital in Cambridge. It sounds pretty quiet for a maternity hospital. Is this normal? This is not massively normal. Um, <laughs> it's good and always we try and keep the noise level to a minimum. This time in the morning it starts getting busy from now really. So before you shoot off to deliver some babies, can I ask you a few questions about labour? How does someone know if they've gone into labour? So generally speaking, because they're experiencing painful contractions, sometimes the breaking of the waters without an awful lot of associated pain might be suggestive of women going into labour as well. But generally speaking, experiencing contractions that are regular and sustained over a period of time is the most clinically relevant sign of someone being in labour. How long does it tend to last very variable. In general, we'll say that for a first-time mother, labour will last on average about eight hours and unlikely to last more than 16, 18 hours. For mothers that have given birth before, it will be on average about five, six hours, unlikely to last more than 10, 12 hours. But it is very variable depending on many different factors. Are there any things that women can do to help themselves have the best labour possible? I'm thinking in terms of physical fitness, would that make a difference? Physical fitness as such does not equate to having an easier labour. However, being physically fit means that you're less likely to have and develop complications during pregnancy, such as high blood pressure, diabetes, or, you know, suffering with obesity or anything like that is likely to potentially impact on the care that you receive during uh, during your pregnancy and in labour. But in, in general, being physically fit means that you'll probably be able to be much more active, being able to um, be fitter for pregnancy itself, hence minimising the the risk of complications. I guess it's important to acknowledge that we're here in a maternity hospital and lots of women give birth in hospital, but some women don't. That's right. So for us in the Rosies, about 1% of women will give birth at home. Sometimes it's planned and sometimes it's unplanned because babies come whenever they want to come, really. Um, But, you know, we are a service that provides adequate care for women, providing they've been informed about the different options that they've got and where to give birth. A question we've had is about pain. Is it possible to have a pain-free labour? Yeah, I guess that's that's a, a very um, individual question. I'm, I'm hoping it's not a tricky question for a man. Pain is a very subjective concept. In general, we'll say that pain is a common feeling that women will experience through uh, labour. Different women will have different ways and different coping mechanisms, different pain threshold. But I will say in general, having a pain-free labour is is something that unless someone's got a genetic mutation where pain pathways are blocked, is something that women will experience. But the pain, the pain concept in childbirth is very different to in other sort of uh, fields in healthcare because it, it's got a good outcome and uh, something that's really exciting associated to it. So some women will experience birth with no pain relief, but still being a very pleasant experience despite being painful. So aside from pain being a subjective experience, are there aspects of labour or intervention that pretty guaranteed to make things more or less painful? So there are certain things that definitely will make labour be perceived as more painful. Induction of labour or any other medical intervention that might be clinically required. Um, Those two things are likely to affect the length of labour. And because it's an artificial form of labour being induced, it might potentially, again, affect the way women perceive pain, making it feel as if it's more painful. So we're currently on the Rosie Birth Centre now. Is this a birthing pool? That is a birthing pool. It looks like a jacuzzi. I'm guessing it's not. Does it have bubbles? It doesn't have bubbles, Uh. yeah. (laughs) So after someone has had a baby, hopefully they're healthy and the baby is healthy. What about recovery? Recovery from labour is very varied depending on on the circumstances and depending particularly on the type of birth a woman's had. In general, about a week to two weeks for someone that's had a normal birth 
a woman having had an instrumental or particularly a cesarean section involving significant abdominal surgery, it might take longer. But in, in general, we'll say that the woman's body tends to go back to the pre-pregnancy state in about six weeks. So, you know, the, the total recovery can last as long as that, but depending on how little intervention or, or more intervention a woman has had, then the recovery might take longer. I'm Andrea and I'm at the Rosie Birthing Centre. Congratulations, I see you've just had a little baby. Yeah, he's Barnabas. First of all, how are you feeling? Actually surprisingly good. I think that somehow women are designed to do quite well after childbirth. The other halves don't tend to look so good on so little sleep actually. Uh, He's doing better this time but I remember him looking particularly grim after another baby being born (laughs) when I didn't look too bad. How was the labour? Obviously it was labour, so it wasn't very nice, but in the grand scheme of things, and that it was as tough as it had to be, and yet um, lots of things came together and we felt really blessed and that it went really well. So I understand you're off home in a minute and hopefully going to have some rest and and enjoy yourself and relax (laughs) as much as is possible with a newborn? Yeah, we're going to try to. I think the adrenaline's still going, so still feeling rather awake. So I imagine I'll crash in the next few days, but enjoy what I've heard other people call the baby moon. So enjoy that for a few days. Have you had any sleep or your partner? Um, he was snoring away, as was my little one. I managed about an hour and a half. But again, I think the adrenaline pumping, very proud to have a new baby. I'm going to let you go and get some sleep. Okay, thank you. Congratulations to Andrea. And before her, you heard from midwife Alberto rodriguez Cala. It's now pretty well establish that we're not alone in our bodies. Trillions of microorganisms, and they're collectively called the human microbiome, live on us and in us, and they make major contributions to keeping us healthy. But how do newborn babies acquire their microbiomes in the first place? And how does the way you're born, or exposure to antibiotics during your life, potentially affect things. Well, Peter Brocklehurst is based at the University of Birmingham, where he's a consultant in public health, and he studies these questions as part of an initiative which is called the Baby Biome Study. So what's the study aiming to establish, Peter? Well, we know that mode of birth, particularly caesarean section when compared with vaginal birth, uh, is associated with conditions in childhood such as asthma and eczema and possibly early-onset diabetes. And the mechanism that links those early exposures to those later outcomes could be through their microbiome. So we know that babies are born without any organisms on them or in them, and their first exposure is at the time of birth. If those organisms that colonise the baby's gut are different between the cesarean section and vaginal birth, then that may be the mechanism by which that risk leads to the later outcomes for the baby. How are you doing the study? So we've taken samples of maternal poo, we've taken samples of baby poo, uh, we've taken cord blood and we've taken vaginal swab samples. And then, of course, we've linked all of those together and we're following up those babies. So we've analysed the poo samples in particular, taken at day 4, 7, 21 and between 6 and 10 months. Uh, And then looking at the organisms that we find and linking those together, ascribing them to the mode of birth of of the baby. So at the moment, the association that we know of, the one you mentioned, is that we've taken people whom we know were born by caesarean section and we've said these individuals have an elevated risk of asthma, other allergies and and intestinal diseases, but we don't know what role the microbiome is playing. Here you're saying you're going to follow these individuals having got a cross-section of their microbiome at these different ages to see if they develop those conditions and then we can actually ask whether one causes or is profoundly linked to the other. Correct. With your initial findings, with the data you have so far, what actually emerges when you compare the microbiome of babies born via caesarean section and those born vaginally? Well, for those born vaginally, perhaps not surprisingly, we're finding organisms, the initial colonising organisms, to be very similar to those that their mothers carry. Uh, because babies are born, obviously, with their mouth close to their mother's anus, and that's probably where they pick up the organisms and get that initial colonisation. For babies born by caesarean section, we'd always rather hoped that the organisms they were first exposed to would be those on their mother's skin or their mother's breast, and those would colonise the baby's gut. What we're finding, however, is that those babies born by caesarean section have a very different microbiome pattern than those delivered vaginally, including a lot of pathogenic organisms, which are those which you would find in hospital-acquired infections. 
of more concern is that those hospital-acquired organisms appear to be persistent. So even at six to 10 months, we're finding high levels of those organisms, many of which are resistant to antibiotics, so antimicrobial resistant organisms, are persisting out to six to, to 10 months. So that's of quite a lot of concern. Indeed, some people say that babies born vaginally, their first taste of life is a mouthful of muck, their mum's muck, but it's probably the most important meal they're ever going to eat because it does seed their microbiome in this way. I suppose it's worth considering that if you've got a cross-section of microbes that aren't quite the ones that ought to be there, as in you've got hospital superbugs and things, they might be there at low level, but what they, what they might be doing is suppressing the growth of other microbes that you do need and which are beneficial to your health. So it's not just the physical presence of, of some bacteria. It might be also that they're causing an absence of other critical ones. Well, I'm not sure that that's true. We are finding, obviously, babies who are born by cesarean section do digest proteins in milk, whether it's breast milk or formula milk. And so there are organisms in there doing the activities that they're supposed to do. It's a very complex system of organisms living in the gut. The issue about which are the initial colonizers, however, is that babies are born without anything, without any organisms inside them. So the first ones they become exposed to, they recognize as being normal and they don't get rid of them. Um, and therefore they can become persistent. So even if they're only there in low levels, if they've got antimicrobial-resistant pathogenic organisms, those could cause disease for them or for other people later in life. We just don't know that yet. And one of the reasons we don't know that is that until quite recently, we, we used to give all women, well, we give all women now who are having a cesarean section a broad-spectrum antibiotics to limit the risk of them developing a wound infection. We used to give those antibiotics after the baby had been born by cesarean section, after the cord had been cut. So none of those antibiotics got through to the baby. Because the recent evidence suggests that by giving the antibiotics earlier, we might slightly decrease the woman's risk of a wound infection, we're now giving high-dose, broad-spectrum antibiotics before the cord is clamped. And so those babies are being born not only by cesarean section, but with a high dose of antibiotics on board. So that may have a double whammy, if you like, in terms of their exposure to organisms. Again, selecting out the antibiotic-resistant and abnormal uh, bacteria, which then become established as normal. Since you brought up the subject of antibiotics, may we therefore venture into the territory of a baby that's born the normal way but develops some kind of infection or is exposed to something that means it ends up needing a big dose of antibiotics in the first year of life. Are you also looking at that and what might be the, the consequences? Because that too could distort the microbiome considerably, couldn't it? Yes, uh, and we know that it does. So again, from epidemiological studies, we know that children who are given antibiotics within the first six months after birth, compared with those given after the first six months but within the first year, those babies giving it early are at a much higher risk of developing childhood obesity than those given later antibiotics. Again, the mechanism for all of this is unclear. It's thought to be through the microbiome, and we do know that antibiotics have a profound impact on the microbiome development. For you and I, if we're given antibiotics, it does affect our microbiome. But over time, that microbiome will drift back to the state it was before because our bodies are used to and tolerate the organisms that we have in our gut because we recognize them as normal. One of the theories is for newborns, until they've developed that tolerance, that you can knock the trajectory in a completely different direction by giving them antibiotics early, killing off some of the bacteria and allowing others to grow, and therefore you, you send the baby's microbiome in a completely different trajectory and it never gets back to where it was before. But we're really in the very early days of understanding this, and it's a highly complex ecosystem in our guts, so I don't want to make too many assumptions about what we're going to find, but I think there are concerns about the very widespread use of antibiotics around birth and in early life that could have quite severe consequences which might not manifest for many, many years to come. Indeed, so one has to be conscious thing. of the fact that antibiotics save lives, don't they? And we, we owe yes. them a great deal. But at the same time, we mustn't be too profligate because there may be unintended consequences. Exactly. And if a baby absolutely needs antibiotics, it needs antibiotics. We don't want women getting lots of infections because we're not using antibiotics appropriately. But I think the balance between using enough antibiotics uh, and not using too many is quite a difficult one. And we need to get that balance right. So we limit our use of antibiotics where it's absolutely essential and limit our exposure to, to when it's potentially quite nice to have, we think, but it could be potentially harmful. And it's that, it's that balance which is quite difficult to achieve. 
So what can health professionals do? Because there are reports in some countries of investigations about the possibility of seeding babies that, that are born by a caesarean section with what we dub the right sorts of microbes by, by taking swabs from the mum and then spreading them into the baby's mouth as one way perhaps to get the baby colonised with the right sorts of microbes early. Lots of people are doing that. It's mostly driven by women and parents uh, rather than health professionals. I think in general, health professionals are quite anxious about this uh, procedure. Everything I've said about the microbiome is still theoretical. We are finding these interesting effects in the microbiome, but we don't know yet that they will lead inevitably lead to disease or problems. That's the hypothesis, and we want to explore that further. But in the meantime, we are concerned that vaginal seeding could introduce one particular organism, which about a quarter of all women carry in their vaginas, which is group B strep, which can be extremely serious. It's very rare that it causes disease, but when it does, these babies can get very sick and die very rapidly. So we feel uncomfortable at suggesting that women should do vaginal seeding because, of course, if that causes a baby to get sick and die as a consequence of addressing a theoretical impact on the microbiome, then that would be catastrophic. So we do need to understand the processes better. We need to understand the mechanisms and we need to understand if we're going to get to the stage of using bacteria therapy in babies born by cesarean section, that we use the right bacteria in the right way, in a more controlled way so that we don't make things worse, we make things better. But that, I think, is quite a long way in the future. We'll look forward to hearing the results being published of the Baby Biome Study. Thank you very much for joining us to tell us all about it, Peter Brocklehurst. Peter's at the University of Birmingham. And thanks also to our other guests this week, who are David Lloyd, Catherine Aiken and Alberto rodriguez Calla. It was fun to gestate this programme with their input. And now to finish the show, we've just got time for Question of the Week, in which Jack Tavern has been crunching through some research to get to the root of this question from Aidan. Hi, this is Aiden from Portland, Oregon, and here's my question. I've heard that consuming orange carrots in high excess can turn your skin orange because of the beta carotene. But what about purple carrots? Fellow naked scientist Katie is with me. I do feel a bit like a guinea pig because um, I've got loads of carrots sitting in front of me. Yeah, and you're still happy to eat as many of these as you can and then see if it's made a difference? I mean, it's a hard life, isn't it? In the name of science, I'm going to basically have a snack. Ready? Go. The carrots Katie is eating make a tasty snack and are packed full of nutritious goodness. One component of this is beta-carotene, an organic pigment your body can use to make vitamin A, which boosts your immune system and, whilst it may not help you see in the dark, can help you maintain healthy vision. This beta-carotene is what makes orange carrots appear orange. Purple carrots, on the other hand, get their colour from anthocyanins, which are the same compound that makes red wine red. And just like with red wine, you might find a purple carrot might stain your tongue. But this doesn't necessarily mean that it also discolours your skin or that your urine turns red, like when you eat lots of beetroot. That's yet another type of pigment. What happens to the purple colour all depends on what happens to the anthocyanins when your body processes them. It turns out that your body is really good at processing anthocyanins, so none builds up in your skin and only a tiny amount comes out in urine. It means you don't turn into a human grape, but purple might not be the colour to worry about. Surprisingly, purple carrots can have levels of beta-carotene similar to orange ones. So ironically, even the purple ones could turn your skin yellow. Something cryptid suggested on the forum. So how many carrots, orange or purple, might you need to cause this? A lot depends on the size of the carrots, how much beta-carotene is in each, and the individual eating them. But from what we found, what is key seems to be the consistently high levels of intake. At least five carrots a day, every day, over the course of a few weeks, would start to cause a change, with the carotene being stored under the skin and most visible on the palms of the hand, soles of the feet, or on the face's laughter lines. You look completely stuffed, Katie. How many have you managed? I'm on number three. I'm still going. <laughs> That's pretty good. Uh, any effects you've noticed yet? Your hair seems to have gone ginger. Oh, ha-ha. My hair's always been ginger. Thank you very much. I'm not sure I've exactly noticed any yellowing or anything like that of the skin. I do feel a bit weird having eaten so many carrots, though. Don't worry. Even if you did turn yellow, you're totally fine. You just have to stay off foods like carrots, tomatoes, sweet potato and even spinach, which contain a lot of carotenoids, for a few weeks or months until the colour goes away. But just before we go, some fun facts that we learned from our friends at the World Carrot Museum who helped with some of the research we've mentioned. Carrots aren't only great as food. 
but can also be used to make lasers, antifreeze, and even to reinforce concrete. So even if purple carrots are more likely to turn you yellow than purple, that's not the only surprising thing about them. Next time, we're taking to the skies with this question from Sean. Why is it that when you look directly at small faint stars, they disappear? But when you look at a point near it, you can see it again. And if you think you know the answer to that one, you can email chris at thenakedscientist.com. You can find us on Facebook, tweet at Naked Scientists. We're also on Instagram, or you can join in the debate on the forum, nakedscientist.com slash forum. And that's all we've got time for this week. Thank you to Katie who put the programme together. And do join us next time when we're going to bring you a Q&A show from the Edinburgh Science Festival. Not got your ticket yet? Go and get one. Come and see us. Meanwhile, if you can spare us the time, we'd love it if you could write a review for us on iTunes or on any podcast aggregator that you're using to get the show. It really helps us to see what you're thinking and it helps us to get the show better known. So do please write us a review. In the meantime, if you have some questions for us, it's chris at thenakedscientist.com. The Naked Scientist comes to you from Cambridge University and is supported by the EPSRC and by Rolls-Royce. I'm Chris Smith. Thanks for listening. And this has been The Naked Scientist. Looking for a break from the never-ending news cycle? Searching for fresh, new content that makes you stop and say, that's how they did that? Then look no further than Teamistry, the new original podcast from Atlassian. Hosted by filmmaker and documentarian Gabriella Cowperthwaite, Teamistry looks past the front-page headlines and into the untold stories of teams behind some of history's most groundbreaking moments. Download Teamistry for free at atlassian.com slash teamistry or wherever you listen to podcasts.